Welcome to the Jacob Buer Show today. Today I am joined by former Congressman Jason Atmeyer. How are you doing today? Very well. Glad to be here. It's, Did I say it right or was it, Alt, or was it Altmeyer? It's Altmeyer. Altmeyer. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. It's a privilege. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself before we go into the questions and talk a little bit about you? Sure. Well, I, I come from a business background. Uh, primarily, I've been a senior executive at two multi-billion dollar healthcare companies, one on the hospital side, one on the health insurance side. And in between those two stints, I served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. Of course, I was there at the time of the debate on the Affordable Care Act. And I uh, also, earlier in my career, served on President Clinton's task force on health care reform. So it's been a, a pretty focused, uh, a, a pretty focused career on healthcare, but um, have also been involved in policy and politics along the way. Awesome. And um, before getting into some of the questions, if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about what it was like campaigning for Congress, and then what exactly it was like um, being a congressman, and what a day in the life was like. When I first ran for Congress, I ran against an incumbent who the conventional wisdom was that she was invulnerable. She had been in public office for 16 years, was widely viewed as somebody who was going to run for higher office, either Senate or governor and maybe beyond. And in the beginning, very few people gave me a chance. And I just traveled around the district and it was 146 towns in Western Pennsylvania and the district stretch all the way from the Ohio line to the northern suburbs across Pittsburgh. And as time went by, of course, momentum picked up and I, I was successful in the end. But I, I will say, even if I had lost that race and never served in Congress, that campaign would have been one of the greatest experiences of my life because you meet so many people, you get to talk about issues that you care about. There's excitement and the thrill of the competition. It, it really is a great experience. So I would just say for anyone who's thinking about running for office, it, it's difficult to put your name on the ballot. It, 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 there are times when it's not fun. You expose yourself to a lot of uh, anxiety and, and uh, pressure and, and you know, people on both sides who are going to come after you for different things, you know, just the way politics works, but it's very much worth it. And again, even if the campaign doesn't work out, it, it's a life experience that you'll never forget. Awesome. And then, of course, once you got elected and you were congressman, what was the day in the life like? And um, real quick, I, I forgot to ask you this earlier. Um, what was freshman orientation like as a new member of Congress? Freshman orientation is interesting because you get together and it's all of the newly elected members of the Congress and the class that I was in, we had, I want to say something in the 50s uh, of Democrats, you know, 55, 60 Democrats, and then uh, it was a pretty lopsided election that year, so there were only 15 to 20 Republicans but, uh, you know, you're all together and you're getting to know people. And in my class, I had people who ended up uh, becoming fairly prominent, uh, but we were all freshmen together, just learning the ropes. You know, Kevin McCarthy, who's now the House uh, Minority Leader, uh, per 
potentially a future speaker if the Republicans take control. He was in that class. Gabrielle Giffords, of course, um, very prominent, um, was in that class. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand uh, was in my freshman class as a House member. Chris Murphy, who's now in the Senate. Senator. Uh, so it's just interesting to see, you know, everybody come in together and you get to watch people grow. And, and as far as the, the day in the life, there's really two things. One is the Washington, D.C. work, which everybody kind of thinks about when they think about being in Congress. That's the speaking on the floor, serving on committees, meeting with constituents and businesses, uh, talking about legislative issues, introducing bills, taking votes on, on important matters. All of that's what you do in Washington, but I would say equally or even more important is what you do back home. And that's representing your district, going around and meeting people in their workplaces, holding town hall meetings and helping people. You, you have folks who have a concern about their social security benefits, their, their VA, benefits, maybe their student loans, folks who want to adopt children from overseas, different countries, and you have to help them cut through the red tape, helping people renew passports for a trip that came up in an emergency circumstance. You know, these are the things that you're able to do for people when you hold that office that, that they will remember forever. And it really makes you feel good to be in position to be able to help. Awesome. And um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that the typical number of days that you guys are actually in session in D.C., I think this year they said is 104 days. It's somewhere around 100 days only that you're actually in session, if I'm correct. Uh, when I was there, I was there 2007 to 2013. I would bet it was a little higher than that. Uh, these are unusual times because of COVID, so I'm not sure what the historic number is, but uh, I, I would guess it might be a little higher than that. But um, it, it, I, it, it, I always laughed when people said when we weren't in session that we were on vacation as <laughs> though, you know, you didn't do any work back home. And I just described some of the things that you do. And I can tell you when you're back in the district, when Congress isn't in session, you are working both days of the weekend. You're traveling around your district. You're going 12 and 15 hour days every day of the work week because you got a lot of territory to cover. And you have a lot of people to meet and there's a lot of need and, and you wanna be effective. So you really do have to work very hard even when Congress isn't in session. That's very true. I've worked on um, quite a few campaigns. So that is a very true statement from our listeners out there. Um, and also of course, a lot of people who are in Congress, a good majority, and I'm not sure how many it is now, but a good majority when they are in DC, they're sleeping in their offices literally so it's a very stressful job and you have late nights and early mornings if i'm correct yeah it, it it's a misconception that people have that your living arrangements are paid for um you have to, it that's not the case you have to pay for two places to live so you have your your home base in your district and then you have to have a place in washington i rented an apartment near the Capitol by myself because I, I wanted to be able to decompress and, and not sleep in the office. Um, but there are people who do that. I think anywhere between you know 75 or maybe 100 members actually sleep in, in their offices and they, you know, they'll shower at the house gym and, and start their day that way. I, I, I didn't want to do it that way. I needed time to kind of get away and recharge overnight. 
I think I'd be the same too. I don't think I'd want to be sleeping on a couch and then seeing constituents the next day. Yeah. Um, and of course, getting into our next topic, just so I don't forget about it, you wrote a book um, a little while back called Dead Center, How to Political Polarization Divided America and What We Can Do to Fix It. Would you like to talk a little bit about that book and where our listeners can buy that? Well, they could buy the book any, anywhere, you know, online, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Books a Million, you know, any any online retailer would have it. And it did very well. We did a nationwide book tour. There's a lot of interest because I talked about why the center is disappearing in Congress, why it's so difficult as a centrist. I, I had a voting record that placed me in the exact midpoint of the Congress when National Journal ranks members based upon their ideology, based upon their voting record. I was in the exact midpoint. So that's why the book is called Dead Center. And I talk about, there's a lot, been a lot of academic research about the way partisans think, why there's so much polarization, how do people react in, in, you know, in group dynamics when you conclusively prove to a partisan that their point of view on an issue is just factually wrong. There's no evidence to support their case. They actually dig in more and become more entrenched in their position rather than flip uh, based upon the factual evidence. And I, I tell some anecdotes from my time as a centrist. I was there in, in some exciting times when, when we were debating the Affordable Care Act. This was when the Iraq War was a, a major issue. And you just find when you represent a district like I did, that's a, a centrist swing district that could go either way in, a, in any given election. Um, when you're voting in the middle, the folks who show up in primaries are the people from the extremes and, and evidence has shown you know, there, there have been surveys of the political leanings of Americans and the people who are further to the far left or the far right extremes are twice as likely to vote in primaries as everybody else. And most of the country views themselves as centrist. They want Congress to work together to compromise, to get things done. But the people who show up in primaries have a very different point of view. And that's the dilemma that you have as a candidate, that you want to win the election. So you have to appeal to the people who decide your fate. And that's people on the extremes. But once you're elected, if you want to work with the other side, if you're labeled as somebody who's willing to compromise, the electorate in the primary will view that as a weakness. They will use that against you in the campaign. So that's what my book talks about it, is why there's so much polarization in the country, what it's like to be in Congress at, at, at this time when centrists are, are so uh, few and far between. And then I have recommendations in the end of solutions and how we can break that, break out of that uh, dilemma. Absolutely. And for all my listeners out there, make sure that you go and check the book out and give it a purchase. And of course, as you just said, you know, you were in the center, not too far to one side, not too far to the other side. How do you see both sides being able to get things done? Because of course, right now, the Democrats run everything. They have the White House, they have the House, they have the Senate. Um, when the when Trump's first two years in office, the Republicans had the White House, they had the House, they had the Senate. And really, you know, there wasn't too much bipartisanship. Um, it was whatever they could jam through while they were in power. How do you think both sides can really come together on something? You have two 
options when, when, when you have complete control of the Congress and the White House, you can either just ram through whatever you want to do without involving the other party, which unfortunately more often than not is what happens, or you can take a step back, you can listen to other points of view, you can compromise and negotiate and get things done in a bipartisan basis. That is the way business used to get done in Washington. If you look at the major pieces of legislation that have passed over the years, the you know, introduction of social security, of Medicare, you know, the, the major issues, the, the Reagan tax cuts in the uh, tax reform of 1986, you know, these were all done in a bipartisan way with big support across the spectrum in both parties. That doesn't happen anymore. When, when you see these big ticket items that pass, whether it be the Affordable Care Act, the Trump tax cuts, the Biden rescue plan from a month or so ago, um, these things passed entirely by partisan votes. And I just don't think that's what the founding fathers had in mind when they created the system. Of course, and of course, um, healthcare is a big part. You've worked in the healthcare industry. Do you think that we will one day have single payer health care, that we will adopt that? Or do you think that we will keep the current system that we have right now? It's funny. Uh, Ten years ago, when we were debating the Affordable Care Act, I guess it's 11 years ago now, Obama. I would have answered that question that there's no chance we would ever go that far. Because you'll remember that was a time when the Democrats had complete control. They had a 78-seat majority in the House, you know, inconceivable today, enormous majority in the House. They had 60 votes in the Senate until Senator Kennedy died. So they had a filibuster-proof majority, uh, at least for part of that time, and then 59 seats after that, which is still a huge margin. And of course, President Obama in the White House, and they couldn't even pass the public option at that time. And the public option is just um, within the selection process of choosing your private insurance plan, there would be one choice that would be a government-run plan that you could choose from in the marketplace, in the exchanges. Uh, and that was not included in the bill because of a public outcry against the idea of government intervention, even in such a small way. So I would have said there's no way something like single payer, a complete government takeover of healthcare was possible. But what's happened is over the last 10 years, the population has moved to the left, I think on a number of issues, but on healthcare, they have a much greater comfort level with government intervention in the healthcare system because all of the things they were told by people on the right about what would happen to the economy if Obamacare passed, none of that came to be. The economy did not collapse. The stock market didn't go down. We didn't lose millions of jobs. All of these were what the predictions were if that passed. And in fact, things got a lot better. The economy went up by every measure and more people have health insurance and there's widespread satisfaction with the law now that it's been implemented. So I think now there's a real opportunity to move forward and, and create a single payer system. I personally do not support that. That's not, I'm not speaking out of, of optimism or, or hope that that happens, 
But I do believe that the politics is in play. It won't happen this year or next year, but within the next five, maybe 10 years, I think the ideology and politics of the electorate has moved to such an extent that it is realistic to see a day when we have a, a government run healthcare system. Yes, and of course, getting on about how it shifted to the left a lot more. Um, where do you see the Democratic Party going? Uh, my great grandpa was a state representative in Ohio. He was a Democrat, but he was often referred to as more of a new, new deal Democrat. Um, but they've really shifted, of course, from the old modern wing, the centrist wing, to now the AOC wing somewhat, and the um, Elon Omar wing, and the radical left. What would you say is, where do you see the Democratic Party heading? Yeah, that was definitely not my area of the Democratic Party. Uh, as I said, I, I, I was a Democrat, but I was a centrist. And I, I just, I have seen the party has moved very far to the left. I think the way you're seeing President Biden govern is indicative of that. The popularity of his Absolutely. programs is driven by the change that's occurred. And if you, again, you go back 10, 15 years and you look at issues like marriage equality or gun control or you know any of the hot button issues of the day. I talked about healthcare, certainly government spending. Um, these are things that it's just been amazing how far to the left the electorate has moved. And within the Democratic Party, that's been driven by a move even further to the left in the party. So I think that's gonna continue. And I think that those, um, those types of folks are, are going to definitely control the agenda in the years ahead. And um, would you say, based off of right now, um, if the 2022 midterm election was today, do you see um, the Republicans taking back control of the Senate or the House? What would you see being in play? That depends on redistricting. We just had the census numbers, a number of the big uh, industrial kind of rust belt states including my home state of Pennsylvania, have lost seats again, uh, as they do every census. And those seats have been transferred to the South and the West, which are generally Republican areas, the, the uh, Southwest and, and Florida and Texas. So they're gonna pay, Republicans will pick up some seats just based upon that, on the, on the shift in population. But in order to take over the House, even though it's only a seven seat margin, um, they're still going to need a little bit more than that. And I, I do think it's too early to tell. Um, President Trump certainly poisoned the well with a lot of folks who may, you know, be swing voters and, and depending on who's in power are, are kind of up for grabs. I think those voters are still very reluctant to vote for the Republican Party. So they have to win back some people before I could say with some certainty that I was, was confident they were going to be able to win back the House. For sure. And, and real quick for our listeners out there, speaking about the Rust Belt, which is really Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, in 2020, there's big races there. Um, Pat Toomey is stepping down. Um, Rob Portman of Ohio is stepping down. Ron Johnson is unsure. So coming to the midterms and everything and other representatives with redistricting will have to run. Um, it'll be interesting. So um, I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, there, there are going to be some very close races. 
and they're going to be determined in large part by whatever is happening politically in the country at that time. And, you know, we're, we're 18 months away from that. So it's just impossible to predict what will happen. Absolutely. And of course, I'm from Ohio, which has always been a state that's been super close. And it'll be interesting to see how that race plays out. Likely Tim Ryan, who's a big moderate as well, will be the nominee for the Democratic side there. But it'll be interesting. Um, But just like you said, 18 months, and I'm sure you know this too, I've been on a few campaigns now. A lot can change in 18 months. Oh, anything can happen. That's right. But, you know, Historical trends would lead you to believe that the out of party, out of power party has a distinct advantage in off year elections. The the party that's not in control of the White House usually picks up a couple of dozen seats or more in the off year elections. So that would certainly seem to imply that the Republicans are in pretty good position. But so far, President Biden appears to be pretty popular. His proposals, while what would have previously been viewed outside the mainstream, uh, they're still uh, wide, widely popular. So uh, unless he has a misstep, I think uh, it's possible that the race for the House is going to go down to the wire. Interesting. And of course, getting to a few of our last questions here, um, what was your biggest accomplishment while you were in office that you would say? I think there's a couple of things that I'm most proud of. One is legislative and one is an example of what I was talking about that you can do as a congressman you know, to help people. Uh, I had, when I, I was in office for three terms and I had 29 laws based upon my legislative initiatives. So, you know, bills or amendments that I introduced or language that I had inserted into bills. And nine of those had to do with veterans, military veterans, some pretty significant things like expanding the Family and Medical Leave Act to cover military families, increased screening and treatment for uh, military veterans leaving the war theater. So I, I think what I would be most proud of is that, because those are people who have made enormous sacrifice for the country and their families have made sacrifices. So the fact that I was able to really do some significant things for veterans I'm very proud of. And Thank you for on the all other, you did with, to help veterans out. Oh yeah, yeah. And on the other side, there was a, uh, an earthquake in Haiti in 2010 and uh, 200,000 people were killed. It was a horrific, disastrous situation. And um, my office received a call the next day from the mother of uh, she had two adult daughters who ran an orphanage in Haiti and that she couldn't get in touch with her. And, you know, to make a long story short, we, we had to go down and cut through red tape and, and work with the State Department and the embassy. And, and I was working with the White House directly. And we had to fly down. I flew down with the governor of Pennsylvania, who was Ed Rendell at the time, and a team of medical professionals and, and, and uh, huge plane full of supplies. And we brought back uh, 54 Haitian orphans that were scheduled to be adopted by American families and the two constituents, the sisters uh, who ran that orphanage. Uh, We brought them back to America. All of those kids are now American citizens. They were adopted by American families. So um, in, in a 
the middle of a terrible situation, we were able to do some good and make a difference in the lives of families all across the country um, who were adopting those kids. So that's something I think that when I'm looking back, uh, however old I live, that's going to be, I think, if not the greatest experience, one of the greatest experiences of my life. That is awesome. Thank you so much. And of course, just another question that I had before we wrap everything up is, would you ever see yourself running for public office again in some way? And what advice would you have for next generation? I'm not going to run for office again. I, I feel like I did it. I, I'm very happy with my service. I made a difference. Uh, I'm doing other things now. And to be honest, again, as a centrist, somebody who likes to work with both sides, I, I don't think I fit in in the current political environment. I, I was there, I think, right at the end of when it was possible to have a successful career as somebody who was a centrist. So um, those two factors would lead me to not run again. But for, for young folks who are interested in politics, I, I would say this, and I, I, when I speak to classes, this, is, this question always comes up and this is always my answer. You should first and foremost think about how you can help and make a difference for your communities. And that might mean volunteering on the library board or whatever is of interest to you. If you're interested in you know, climate change, some, some kind of um, you know, environmental group, uh, whatever it is, um, find your interest, find where you can personally make a difference and get involved. And that does not necessarily mean running for office. Your, your goal shouldn't be, how can I get into office? I like that looks really cool to me because you get to go on TV and, and do neat things. That's not why we need people to run for office. We want people to run for office who want to make a difference for their communities and have a track record of doing so. So if you're interested in helping people do that first, and that might very well lead to running for office. Maybe at some point a seat opens up or the stars align for you to make a viable run or somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I think you'd make a good congresswoman. Do you, maybe you should think about running. That may happen and definitely go for it. You will love the experience, win or lose. And I highly encourage it, but it shouldn't be your ultimate goal. Your ultimate goal should be, how can I help people? And if you approach your life that way, you will make an enormous difference. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Happy to do it, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Jacob Viewer Show today. Today, we're joined by State Representative Kurt Nisley. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be on the show with you. Great to have you on. Um, how's your month been? <laughs> it's, it's been interesting. We're, we're just a month away from session starting in the Indiana legislature. So trying to get all my bill requests in and all that stuff this month. Awesome to hear. And, and thank you again for what you do. Are you ready to dive into questions? I'm ready. All right. What do you look forward to in this upcoming session and what bills do you plan on sponsoring? Okay. Well, this, this next session is going to be an interesting one. Uh, so I, I think that the main thing is to uh, define what powers the governor should have during an emergency. Uh, the current statute uh, was, is very vague and very broad. 
and it was put in after 9-11. And it basically says that if the governor declares a state of emergency, he can do whatever he wants to do. And I don't think that fits with the Indiana Constitution. So uh, I took my oath to uphold the Indiana Constitution. And I want to make sure that the governor's powers in emergency are well-defined and not vague like they are today. Great response there. Um, and then I know you're also a big pro-life person. What right. do you see going on um, with a potential pro-life bill this session? I know that a few more state representatives are now agreeing to it. Where do you see yes. it going this session? Yeah, so so I've, I've had the bill for several years now that would ban abortion in Indiana. Uh, the Supreme Court was very wrong with the Roe v. Wade uh, decision they had. Uh, that was back when I was just soon after I was born. And, and the Supreme Court was, is wrong on that. And, you know, they've been wrong before. They were wrong on slavery. They were wrong on uh, civil rights for black people. Uh, they, they've, they've been wrong and, and, and they're wrong on this one. And so I take the approach that the federal government has no business in the area of abortion and the state should decide uh, what, what's allowed and what's not allowed. Uh, Kill, killing babies is not okay. So, so I have that I bill. Agree. Yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> and what, what's interesting is, you know, when I filed it a couple of years ago for the first time, it seemed to be kind of this weird idea that states could do this. And now we have states all over the nation. Uh, we've got legislators in states all, all, all over the nation pushing a very similar uh, thing, uh, taking, taking the same approach of state sovereignty in uh, the in the area of abortion, so uh, it's it's definitely gaining traction. I think it's a whole lot more mainstream now than it was just a few years ago. Great response, and and every year we're having more and more abortions. And yeah. as a Christian myself, I'm very much against abortion and everything mm -hmm. like that. Um, the second question that I have today is, what inspires you to keep on fighting for these things? Okay, well. Free people limit government. If if we don't stand up and and you know claim uh, claim our our rights as Americans, nobody else is going to do it for us. And so yeah, there's there's been times when I've just wanted to quit and let somebody else do it. And yet when I realize that you know the supporters that I have locally and now all around the state, it just uh, it, it would not be right for me to, to quit at this point. As long as the voters here in my district keep sending me, um, I'll just keep doing it. Awesome answer right there for the people. Yeah. Um, um, what would you say is the biggest issue that they're going to try to resolve with all this coronavirus thing when it comes to the state? Um, I know that there's rumors of all types of bills. What would you say is the bill that will be the first Thing passed and will probably be signed by the governor, no matter you like it or not, when it comes to the coronavirus. Well, that's that's interesting because it's hard to predict, predict what the legislature will do. I have already put forth a resolution to end the state of emergency. I filed that on organization day here a week or two ago. It was just a one-day uh, ceremonial uh, day, but it's the first day that we could actually uh, file bills and resolutions. So I've already done that. Uh, so I would hope that that would be the first thing we do. 
is is end the state of emergency. It doesn't mean the emergency is over. It just means that uh, the governor doesn't have the powers that he's been exercising during this time. And um, it, for the, when it comes like the mask mandate or something, would you guys have to have the two thirds majority to do that in the Senate then, to, or the Senate and the House to override that? No, or in Indiana, it's it's a simple. Uh, it's a constitutional majority to override a veto. Well, actually a resolution, the governor doesn't even get to sign, the one that I'm talking about here. Uh, so it would just require him to put a uh, put out an executive order declaring that the state of emergency has ended. Uh, but for any other bill that would limit the powers, if the governor would veto it, in Indiana, the veto override is a constitutional majority which is 50% plus one. Uh, the same number that it takes to pass a bill is the same number it takes to override a veto in Indiana. Wow, um, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> um, what is the biggest threat if we go into another big lockdown? Um, if let's say by chance, they just the governor says, hey, we're in a shutdown. You can't even go to work. Businesses are closing everything. What do you see as the biggest threat in that situation? If we go into six state, we block down just like what we did in March earlier this year. Yeah, well, it is, we have a constitution here in Indiana and it, it there's so many different things. Uh, the, the right for inhabitants of the state to assemble is one of them. Uh, pe uh, people can exercise the freedom of religion uh, no, no different classes of people. All laws must apply equally to all citizens. There's, there's so many things in the Indiana Constitution that, uh, or sorry, the, yeah, the Indiana Constitution that have been just trampled on by the last set of executive orders uh, that the governor has done. And, and if, if he does that again, that, that's just not right. I agree with you because that's why there's a constitution in the first place. So there's yes. not too much of a government overreach. That's Can why um, in the state constitution and the U.S. Constitution, our founding fathers did that. You know, they didn't just write a paper for a reason. Yeah. You know, Can they I did add, it for purpose. Add to that, the the constitution is there to limit the government, not to limit the people. It's called it's a bill of people. rights. Yes. For a reason. In fact, my, um, once we get done here, I, I'm going to send you a link. My wife just did an audio recording or a video with, with audio recording of the Bill of Rights of the Indiana Constitution. And it's just pretty cool to, to actually you know, hear it uh, read. So I'll send that over to you once yes, we get done here. Absolutely. And one other question, if we still have time for it, what is the best part of being a state legislator and serving in the state assembly? Well, it's, it's, it's an honor to represent the people. There's 65,000 people here in Kosciuszko County and in Elkhart County that I represent. They have, a, they've elected me now uh, four times. This is my fourth term to represent them. And, and just to, to have that responsibility and know that those people are, are counting on me to be their voice to Indianapolis, uh, that, that, that is really a cool thing. Great response there. And, and we need more of that. Um, and thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
glad to be here. Do you, would you like to add anything else? Well, I'm, I'm just glad that, that you're doing this and, and young people like you are, are interested in what's going on. And you know, you could be spending your afternoon playing video games this afternoon, but here, here you are uh, doing a podcast to let you know your friends know, uh, your the people in your school know uh, what's what's going on. And so, I just appreciate what you're doing, Jacob. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it, and I hope you have a great rest of the year, and that the session goes very smoothly. This. Yeah, come up to the state house. Come up to the state house sometime when we're in session. And, Absolutely. Uh, look me up there. Love to meet you there. Yes. Thank you so much, and have a great rest of your day. Okay. Thanks, Jacob.